I'm Kelly Harrell, author, animist, and creator of the Weekly Rune. Solentent Arts is my soul-tending practice, and you're listening to What in the Weird, my podcast in which I talk about runes, actionable animism, soul-tending, and how all of those intersect through sacred activism on my path. The Weekly Rune is out, and if you're not sure what it is, it's a runecast that I've done for years, focused on the runic calendar and the current half-month rune. The Weekly Rune is now available in full on Patreon.com. Just do a search for Kelly Harrell to find it, and you can find the archive of all past runecasts on my site, soulintentarts.com. If you're not sure what a half-month is or what the runic calendar is, Listen to the early episodes of What in the Weird, or just go read the weekly rune. It's explained fully at the beginning of every runecast. I want to thank everyone who listens to the podcast, those who send in notes. I always enjoy hearing from you and how the runes touch your life. I also want to thank my Patreon supporters who make the sharing of my rune work through the runecast and this podcast possible with their financial support. If you've benefited from the podcast, the RuneCast, or the ton of free articles on the runes, animism, and soul-tending on my website, you can show your support through buying my books, which you can also find at my website, soulintentarts.com, by making a one-time contribution through PayPal, or contributing regularly through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for Kelly Harrell, and you can also subscribe to the Weekly Rune there. And thank you for it. Hagalaz starts the new et. I wrote a good bit in the last two rune casts of the weekly rune about how we experience hinge times as humans, by which I mean like corners. We don't turn corners well, neither here, not really there. What our minds do with that medium stance is a funny thing. And I talked about this a lot in the full rune cast, which you can catch on Patreon. But in short, we don't handle it well, which is why we've taken the colonized separation of mundane and spirit and run with it. Colonization is ultimately what killed animism for us as an instinctive way of experiencing the world around us. And that's why now we're freaked out by it whenever something happens in the unseen that disrupts our experience of the scene. We don't know what container to put it in when weird things happen. And I admit, I love a creepy story as much as anybody, though I do think I hear them differently than most people. To me, they're cries for help. Like, I, I don't hear the ghost thing. You will likely never hear me say that word again. Um, those kinds of true paranormal, they're, they're sad to me and they're, they're not entertainment and not to mention I've experienced one too many of those kinds of things to ever go seeking them out on purpose. So nonetheless, they're a facet of this time of the year, right? That this all you hear anybody talk about. And I want to talk a little bit about the transition into the dark time and why it's so relevant to our psyche. Last week, I think it was last week, I wrote an article on Medium called The Thinning Veil and Animism. You can go 
find that. It goes into a lot more detail. But the memo is we get really freaky in the cold dark of the year. We manifest psychosis through seasonal affective disorder, although I have that in summer. I cannot stand all that bright light. But we have a cellular memory of worrying about whether we're going to make it through the harsh elements and whether our harvest stores are going to be enough. It makes sense that it would be a time of focusing on the ancestors because, you know, God help our asses and our general spiritual connections to well-being. It makes sense that when the lights go out, all of a sudden we get faithful and also historically our usual markers for that well-being, the ability to look around and look at the scenery and say, well, the grass is green, it's growing, the rivers are high, nature's healthy, I'm healthy. You don't have that in the winter, at least not in the far north. If you look around and see the way that you usually measure your well-being and see that nature is under duress, that would be a pretty stressful thing. So what does all of this have to do with anything? Some of y'all know this, but my spiritual path bends toward Irish Celtic Druidic study. I completed a four-year study probably, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago, and also Old Norse Seder. Some people are appalled at that combination, which I say, go you people who have one strain of ancestry, because raise your hand, all one of you right? We go with what we have. I'm not clear-cut within myself. My ancestry isn't. And how it all shows up in my life and my spiritual path reflects that. In the tradition that I was originally taught, Samhain or Alphablot, depending on your flavor, those time frames represented the end of the year. But the beginning of the year wasn't until winter solstice weeks later. And so that gap in between was like a silent 13th month. I mean, looking at our calendar through the lens that we would use, it was outside regular time. And again, that understanding of of things not really fitting here or there underscores that at some point we had a natural awareness of that. Some things really do just fall between betwixt. In true celebration of that aspect of our shift into the dark time, I want to read the second most visited post on my blog. The first one is on seizures, if you can believe that, it is. So this one is, a sh- there's a short version of it on my website. It's called Hotel Phillips and Murderous Insomnia. Yes, you heard that correctly. And there's a more detailed version of it in my book, Real Weird. Yeah, just like the podcast. And I'm going to read that for you today. My purpose in writing this book, this came out some years ago. I don't remember exactly. But um, I wanted to talk about when it is dark, when you do healing work and Sultan, because at the time at least, and I really don't think now, people don't talk about when it blows up in your face, when you are absolutely scared, shitless, and taken unaware, and you have to deal with that element of startle 
and respond at a soul level. No, nobody was talking about that at the time. I, I don't meet a whole lot of people who are talking about it now. So that's what this book is. It's called Real Weird, A Modern Shaman's Roots in the Middle World. I would have phrased all of that differently now, but here we go. Hotel Phillips and Murderous Insomnia. In early spring of 2002, I had the fortune of spending a week at the beautiful Hotel Phillips in Kansas City, Missouri, while on a business trip. I'm quite used to loads of spirit traffic when I stay in hotels. However, my stay at Hotel Phillips offered a bit more than the luxury experience the lush establishment touts. From the first night that I checked into room 1513, I sensed many presences. Again, not unusual at all, as I do quite a bit of death walking. Staying in hotels for me is like being tapped on the shoulder constantly. It's far from restful, and Hotel Phillips was no different. Upon checking into their rooms, other people hang up their clothes first thing, they spread their toiletries, find area restaurants. I create sacred space and release errant energies. A gesture, part compassion, and part hopeful of a solid night's sleep. On this occasion, one presence in particular stood out right away. A female whose only visual aspect was a white lace hem that I saw close to the floor. I saw her in my room and hall several times the first few days that I was there, though she wouldn't allow me to feel her etheric field. What was odd about this spirit was when I offered to release her, she didn't want to go. From time to time, spirits aren't ready to leave for any number of reasons, and I left her to herself. Primarily focused on the work that brought me to this city, I just honored her distance and let things go. I also got a sense with this presence more than any of the other errant ones that passed through that she had indeed died in the building and needed friendly company. Regardless, I couldn't sleep in the room. She wasn't particularly bothersome or ever-present, but her air of unrest was contagious. Two mornings into my stay, I got up, showered, and was drying my hair in the bathroom when I felt that I wasn't alone. The feminine presence was in the room. I opened the bathroom door to find a distraught woman standing at the threshold. She was about 22 to 25 years old with long auburn curly hair, a um, white woman in a rather formal 1930s style drop waist dress. Her hem fell just above her ankles, the garment that I had been seeing all week. And as I gazed upward, a large bloody wound in her chest dripped blood and tissue onto the floor. She'd been shot in the back and was experiencing the panic of her death moment right in front of me. Seemingly in shock, she wouldn't budge from the doorway. I stepped out of the bathroom and threw her as she moved to the side of my bed. I don't advocate that, by the way. I didn't learn her name, though she was cloaked in a strong sense of betrayal. It seemed she had become involved with the man, and the relationship couldn't, for whatever reason, come to fruition. This man shot her. 
when spirits visit, I often learn information around the cause of death. And it's always fascinating. I'm tempted to delve into their stories and learn about their lives and deaths. Yet staying true to my role as psychopomp means that such details are mere curiosities. They aren't the work itself. For me to prod into their personal straits would be like a doctor stretching a wound rather than just stitching it closed. Thus, the only real objective with the dead is in learning how I can facilitate helping them move to the next phase of their destiny than doing just that. Everything else is superfluous. That said, sometimes learning what I must to help them shift before they can move on is no easy feat. I asked her if she wanted to be released, and she hesitated. I told her that she wouldn't have fully shown herself to me if she didn't want help, and I asked what held her here. My sense was that she was waiting for the man who killed her, her lover, to somehow redeem himself. Often the dead don't move on due to some third-party objective that I don't have access to. I can only work with what I know, and knowing nothing about the circumstances of her relationship or death, I stayed focused on how to help her. I told her that she may have a long wait, that she'd already had a long wait, and that she could wait for him to make amends in a much better place than this lonely hotel. After a bit more discussion, she allowed me to walk her into spirit space, and all was restful. I finished readying myself for work and went on to my teaching session. When I returned that night, from the minute I entered the room, I was uneasy. The oppressive stuffiness of the room was worse than when I first arrived, and the gloomy presence was angry at me. I knew it wasn't the woman, yet the spirit refused to communicate. Once in bed, the lights were out for about two minutes when a low scuffling came from a corner of the room, like a large rodent in a brown paper bag. The sound grew extremely loud, and I began to hear it in different parts of the room simultaneously, rooting in the walls under the bed. The sounds grew louder. I lay listening for a few seconds when finally the crescendo behind the headboard formed a complete circle around the bed. The entity meant to frighten, if not threaten me. This intention became more evident when the discordant sound resonated with pressure on my body, a firm weight crushing down on my ribs. I'd been rattled by all the theatric noise and movement. It was bullshit, man. It scared the shit out of me, but for real. Um, but non-consensual physical contact from spirits is an extremely disturbing phenomenon. For me, when an encounter reaches that point, fear becomes anger, and I was pissed. Enraged, I sat up in the bed, and I observed a male in the room, about four feet from the foot of my bed. Although well-dressed and clearly well-to-do, he was surrounded by black clouds. He appeared white, though physically didn't appear entirely human. His life force was exaggerated beyond a mere human, though it was clear to me that he was of the earthly realm. He had not moved on. I knew this man was the woman's killer and that he had killed many times. He was a nasty piece of work, and he was angry at me for interacting with the woman. 
he had killed her in the hotel, I'm assuming that it was a hotel at that time, though not in that room. He had never been linked to the crime. His pride was wounded that I knew what he'd done, as he was used to getting away with everything. Having seen his dirty deeds, he wanted to eliminate me as a threat. He was afraid that I would hand him over to some authority for punishment. He was so stuck in a defensive consciousness in his personal drama that he didn't realize that he was dead. I told him that I didn't care what he'd done in his life and that I wasn't there to judge him. He didn't believe me, though, as I continuously said the words. His energy gradually softened. The noise in the room stopped, and I told him this wasn't the place that he needed to be anymore, that whatever happened between him and the woman was between them, and that if he felt ready to deal with that from a more useful space, that I could help him get there. I also made it perfectly clear that I was ready to sleep and we would not be negotiating all night. At that, the clouds around him began to dissipate and I still didn't see him clearly. I held the space to release him for a good 45 minutes or so, but he went relatively easily, thoroughly. And for the first time since I checked into Hotel Phillips, my room was quiet on all fronts. The next morning, I approached the concierge and I asked if anyone had reported anything strange about room 1513. He, along with the staff at the front desk, went pale and asked me what had happened. When I told them that I saw a woman in my room, they stammered a bit and kind of went on to say that they hadn't had any reports about that room and no disturbances had been reported at all since the hotel had reopened post-renovations that fall. They offered to assign me to a different room and when I declined, kind of huddled over in the corner still whispering. Clearly they were aware of creepy occurrences, but I couldn't tell if they would be relieved or disappointed to learn that their gangster specter and his damsel were no longer guests. Here's where this gets even more weird. In 2012, the hotel contacted me because my story bothered them in some way. I'm not exactly sure how. Um, they wanted to know what else I'd written about the hotel. Mm, and nothing, you know, it, it was what it was, and, and I never heard from them again. But in 2014, I got an email from a family member of the murderer. I shit you not. She told me that the man was her great uncle and that he had murdered a woman there and then killed himself in the hotel, she said. I wrote about that. Go read that post. It's called When Creepy Gets Creepier because it does, right? And it's all real. It's all connected. It's all weird. So I encourage you to sit gently in the between over these next few weeks. And it does last several weeks. You know, we've got Hagalaz and then Nalbis and then Isa, where we're kind of in this limbo space where we're not allowed to move just yet. And it all serves a point, doesn't it? So let's see what point we can take from all of our experiences, even the ones that we don't understand at all, even the ones that defy what we think is the limit of our understanding of how we're here.
I'd like to leave you with the half-month affirmation for Hagalaz, which is from my book, Runic Book of Days. Between darkness and light is the wisdom of balance, the embrace of peaceful unknown. That's it for this episode. If you have questions or insights about working with the runes in season or you just need a cheerleader, feel free to email me at kelly at solentonarts.com or call in through the Anchor app, which you can download for Android or iPhone. Also, check out earlier episodes by downloading them from Google Play or iTunes and all the other podcast platforms out there. If you get a chance, check out Everyday Animism, which is a podcast that I co-host with a couple of other lovely ladies, also on Anchor. And other podcasts you might enjoy are Around Grandfather Fire, hosted by James Stovall and Sarah Odinson, and also Why Shamanism Now, hosted by Christina Pratt. You can learn more about me and my work by visiting solentonarts.com or on Instagram at Kelly Soul Arts. I'm Kelly, and this has been What in the Weird. Mm-hmm.